continue on in our series, uh, Refocus, Becoming the Church God Intends. Uh, I'm not going to pause the series, but I do have some instructions built into the sermon on one of my points for our fathers, so it is there. But you know, this series wasn't planned. Last November, when I was looking at the year and planning the year out and thought I was so smart and, and had everything just, just the way I wanted it. You know how that is. We all do that. Or at least people wired like me do that. None I couldn't have imagined, and none of us could have imagined what 2020 was going to look like and what it was going to bring and all the things that have happened these last few months. This series, Refocus, is a direct result of what I believe God has been speaking to us through this worldwide pandemic. I mentioned at the very beginning of this series, back, or not this series, back at the beginning of the pandemic, I said, if you'll have your spiritual antennas up, do you remember that? Anybody was here? If you'll have your spiritual antennas up, I believe God will speak to you in an unprecedented way during this period of time. And boy, has he ever. And what he's done for those who are listening and those who are sensitive and those who will receive it, he's stripped away some things. And I'm calling those things and I will continue to call those things idols in my heart, in my life, and in the church. Not just New Life Church, but I'm saying the Big C Church, really in the Western civilization. It wasn't a sinister thing that we've done. We weren't doing it intentionally. It's a slow fade over many, many years that we've allowed and elevated certain things in our life, whether it's money or sports or an activity or someone, something, or in church, whether it's a style or a person or a personality or a how we do things. We've elevated some of those things higher than our Savior. And that's idolatry. And God has revealed those things. And so the big idea of this series, and I'm going to share it every single week we do this, is very simple. To become the church God intends, we must refocus. Somebody say refocus. We must refocus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must look to him and him alone. We must be reminded of what he taught and how he lived, who he focused on, how he reacted to disappointment and pain and suffering and and, and crisis, his way of life. Not just to learn about it so that we can do it. Come on. So that we can be a people who follow him. Because folks, we're the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. How can we represent the the arms, the the hands, the feet, the mind, the heart of Jesus if we're not studying him, if we're not living like him? So that's the whole purpose of this thing. And I don't feel a release from this yet. Normally today would be my last sermon for four weeks. I do a, uh, the elders set this up before I ever came to do a four-week teaching sabbatical in the summer. I'm not going to do that this this season. I'm going to do it because it's important to be refreshed. But I'm going to push it because of the season that we're in and because of the series 
that we're in. Last week, we began looking uh, at the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the list of blessings that Jesus wants his followers to focus on. Everybody look at me. But none of them look like what we think of as blessings. None of them fit in the category of what we would imagine or say would be blessings. None of them line up with our Western mindset. So that led me to ask this question, and we're going to wrestle with it again today. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it really mean? What constitutes a blessed life? Now, in our culture, that's very easy, right? Good health, great family, good income, good job, good home. Are any of those things bad? No, not at all. But they're temporal. They're temporal. And there's the problem. Our focus is temporal. So Jesus is challenging us to think differently as kingdom people. Are y'all with me? No? Nobody. Nobody. That's all right. I'm going to preach anyway. We only got through the first Beatitude. We got stuck right there. And we talked about blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm not going to re-preach the sermon, but basically Jesus was not talking about a financial thing in this situation. The poor in spirit, I want you to hear me, because if you weren't here, I want you to get this. The poor in spirit are those who embrace or realize or understand their complete spiritual bankruptcy without God. Now, I chose that word carefully and on purpose because it's a powerful word. And if if you've experienced bankruptcy, you understand it's two parts. It's not just a lack of resources. That's bad enough, right? When resources run out and run dry, that's bad enough. But there's also the part that you have incurred a debt that you can no longer pay. And so if I'm poor in spirit, I understand my complete dependency upon the grace and the mercy of my heavenly father. You see, mercy is the forgiveness of that debt that I could not pay, the forgiveness of sin. And grace is the deposit of righteousness into my spiritual account. Can you give God praise for what he has given us? What he has taken away. Now there's a whole lot more to that sermon. So if you missed it, go back and catch up online. Today we're going to continue down this list. We're going to hit three more of this list from Matthew 5. And I want us to keep this question in our minds. What does it really mean to be blessed? Again, this isn't an exhaustive list of blessings. There are other blessings in the world. Everybody look at me. But... These are the ones Jesus taught. These are the ones he focused on. And so therefore, these are the ones we are going to focus on. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you would get me, my personality, my thoughts out of the way. And that you would elevate your son, Jesus Christ. And that your word would go forth with power. It would not return void. It would become prophetic and life-changing in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. You know, I have always have notes and I work hard on my 
notes to, to make sure it's clear. Somebody was, I was talking with earlier saying, I appreciate your clarity in your sermons. You don't confuse me, blah, blah, blah. I work hard at that. But I want today, I don't want to be note-driven. I want this to be a conversation. And I should have done this last week, but I want us, before we get into the text, I want us to, to really pick apart and dissect this word, blessed. The word literally means happy. But that's a problem, too. Because we've messed that word up as well. So we really need to redefine, rethink what this word happy means. Um, a man named Dean Carnazis, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, Dean Carnazis, he was, like me, an ultra marathon man. Listen, he was an ultra, yes, it's funny because I'm not, but anyway. He, listen to what he did. In 50 days, in 50 days, he ran 50 marathons. Ultra fitness, ultra marathon man. And he was doing an interview. And in this interview, he said something that really caught my attention. I want to share it with you. He said, Western culture, that's us, has things a little backwards. We think that if we had every comfort available to us, we'd be happy. We equate comfort with happiness. And now we're so comfortable, we're miserable. Wow. Wow. In other words, comfort is overrated. And if you read the New Testament, it's just not there. Comfort doesn't lead to happiness, it leads to laziness. It leads to complacency. It leads to more screen time than face time. It leads to boredom. Those of you parents with little kids, you know that. If they have too much time on their hands, if they have too much free time, they end up actually being bored without structure. But it's the same for us. Come on, you can only sleep or nap so much. You can only watch so much Netflix. I think some of you are going for a record. You can only play so many video games. You, you fill in the blank with your thing, your sport, your activity, your, your whatever that thing is. You can only do that. For me, eating. Oh, my word, the, the quarantine, y'all, was so bad. <laughs> Comfort eating. Is anybody feeling my pain right now? I'm, I'm, y'all are all, everybody, don't have your hands up. You're lying. <laughs> if, listen, if your life is a pursuit of comfort, you will eventually become a miserable and a depressed person. Why? Because your heavenly Father perfectly designed you in His image. And my God is not lazy. My God does not waste time. My God is creative. My God is active. My God is loving. My God is on the move. And He has created us to be the same way. And so when we're not, 
Pastor, what you're trying to say? I think you get it, but here's the, here's the point. You have been designed on purpose for purpose. You have been designed. You're not an accident. Your parents may have been like, you were an accident, but it, you know, it was fine. No, you were not. You were not. You have been designed on purpose for purpose. And guess what? Comfort is not it. Now, your purpose, your calling, and by the way, every one of you have a calling who know Jesus. Not just the ministers, not just the people on stage. Every single, it's called the priesthood of all believers. That's a, that's a theological fact. Every one of us have been called to something. It, and most, more than likely, it's in the marketplace. To be a light of Christ in the marketplace, using the gifts and the talents that God has already given you. But in that, that purpose, that thing may be the hardest thing, the most challenging thing that you can possibly imagine. But until you are walking in that purpose, until you are pursuing and working on that thing and engaged in that thing, you will never feel blessed. You will never be happy. Like, Pastor, but I just don't know what that is. It's no mystery. Listen, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You figure this thing out. As you follow Jesus, you keep your eyes on him. You keep following him. You keep being living your life obedient to the word of God, and you will find yourself in his will. You don't have to have the latest book to figure it out. You don't have to have the latest word from the whoever. This is your word today in Jesus' name. And I'm telling you, if you will keep your eyes on Jesus and you will keep after him and you will not look to the left or to the right, but you will follow after him, you will find yourself in his will. And that, my friends, is a blessing. I can end the sermon right there, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Got too much. No matter how good your health is, or how beautiful your kids are, or how much money you make, or how big and beautiful your house is, you will not be happy. You will not be blessed until you are in the will of God, until you are in the purposes of God. So let me give you an official definition of our word. Look at the screen. To be blessed is the intentional state of being an active participant in the kingdom of God, not a passive participant. That's not even, that's, that's, that's an oxymoron. You can't be that. An intentional and active participant in the kingdom. You need to become a kingdom person. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. The things that God really need, wants you to have in your life, he'll add to you. He'll give you. Paul says in Colossians 1.12, he says, He, God, has enabled you to share. Say share. Share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom, that's grace, and forgave our sins, that's mercy. Folks, everybody, don't waste the grace and mercy of God in your life by pursuing comfort 
and pursuing whatever stability means. True blessings don't promise laughter. True blessings don't promise fame. True blessings don't promise earthly prosperity. Being blessed by God means experiencing, listen, internal hope and joy regardless of what's happening around you. Hope and joy are the deepest forms of happiness. Hope and joy. I would to God that new life would be full of kingdom people. Kingdom people seek a different kind of blessing than those in the world. Kingdom people have a different kind of attitude about life than those in the world. So with all of that in mind, by the way, that was the longest introduction I have ever preached in my life. But don't panic because we're already halfway through. Let's jump into Matthew 5. Let's get back in. Remember, this is red letters. This, these are the words of Christ. Verse 4 says, blessed, there's our word, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now you're like, Pastor, you just talked about comfort, comfort, comfort. Pursuing comfort and getting comfortable is very different than being comforted. So once again, we gotta, we've got to dive down below this thing to really get the meaning of what Jesus was saying here when he's talking about mourning He's not just talking about bereavement, okay? He's not just talking about when we lose somebody, you're blessed when somebody dies. That's not what he's saying. I, I really dug into this and got into the Greek, and I read some scholarly works, and here's what I came away with in my studies. Jesus is most likely referring to those who mourn or grieve over injustice and rampant evil in the earth. In other words, those who are mourning or grieving over the the condition of sin in the world, the condition of the world because of sin. Now that statement causes me to think, doesn't it? Causes me to think about the atrocities like abortion. Millions of babies killed and the mothers that went through that and are still struggling That statement causes me to think about refugees, especially Christian refugees that had to run for their lives with just the shirts on their back because of evil men dominated and being controlled by demons. That statement causes me to think about what we're going through in our nation right now with the racial injustices and all the things that are being brought once again to the surface that we're dealing with. Can I just encourage you and challenge you to be careful with how you react to that? Can I challenge you to be careful and to ponder and to pray about what you post online? Because as you try to make your point, you're driving a wedge between other people of Christ. And they may be right or they may be wrong. You may be right, you may be wrong. That is not the point. Be careful. But grieving over what's happening, Jesus says, 
those who grieve and mourn over the sin condition of this world will be blessed because God will triumph over evil. God will triumph over Satan. God will triumph over all injustices in this world. And he's saying those who mourn, those who grieve these things now will be comforted on that day. Let me give you a scripture that will encourage you about the future. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, uh, from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be, listen to this now, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Will you give God praise right now? That's the future. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. He's saying if you'll grieve these things now, if you'll mourn these things now, you will be comforted because evil will be vanquished. Now, it's obviously not enough to just mourn injustice. There must be action in addition to our tears. Come on, somebody. Paul tells us in Philippians, he says, work out. Everybody say work out. I don't really like those words together, but it, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He did not say work for. You can't do that. We're saved by grace through faith. He said work out and How we respond to sin, how we respond to these injustices like abortion and racism is a huge part of this working out. And I challenge you, if you haven't already, you need to pray about and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what you can do to help and to make a difference. And it's probably not some massive, huge thing. It may be as simple, listen, as having a conversation with someone who has a very different life and background and experience than you. And not judging, just listening. Someone with a very different life and different upbringing and different educational opportunities than you had. That'll go a long way. But here's the key. A healthy response to injustice begins with a pliable heart. That's what we learned Monday night in prayer, in our prayer meeting. That's what came to the surface. God talked about heart surgery. Nothing, you you mark my words, nothing will change until we allow the Holy Spirit to change our heart. I got to move on. Verse 5 says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Another word for meek is what? Humble. Humble. And there's that word again. It keeps coming back and up. It's like a thread all the way through this series. Humility. Humility. The follower, listen to me, folks, the follower of Jesus doesn't aggressively insist on their way all the time but displays genuine humility. And here's the key. They're not forced to do that. They do it by choice. 
When someone is in a position of power or authority and chooses to lay their rights and their opinion down, that is humility for the betterment of the group or the betterment of the family, the betterment of the relationship. That is meekness. But don't mistake meekness for weakness. Don't mistake meekness for weakness. Some of the strongest leaders, some of the strongest Christians that I've ever known were meek. But they were far from timid and far from weak. Come on, it's it's those that are strong in their faith that could assert themselves but choose not to. It's the strong in faith that understand who they are in Christ and don't have to open up their mouth to make that point, but just rest and are quiet and are silent and are meek because they know who they are in Jesus. They don't have to prove anything. So I try to tell my daughter Rachel all the time on the soccer field. Let your playing prove. Don't, don't, don't open your mouth. Let your playing, you're good. You don't have to, to open your mouth. You don't have to trash talk. Just, just play. That's what Jesus is saying. You have been bought with a price. You are blood bought. You are my child. You are my son, my daughter. You don't have to say that. You don't have to open up your mouth. You don't have to try to prove this or that. I have done everything for you. Just stand in me. He's saying that person, that person, not the cocky one, not the arrogant one, not the one who might be able to twist words around, that person is blessed. Now here's where I want to bring the Father's Day message in. The family has always been a target of the enemy. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, and then their boys, Cain and Abel. From the very beginning, they've been under attack. Look at the screen. Satan knows that if he can divide the family, his goal of wreaking havoc everywhere else will be that much easier. If he can confuse the family, if he can divide the family... If he can can cross the line with the family, then everything else he's trying to do will be that much easier. And so he often begins the assault on the family with who? The fathers. According to Scripture, the father is to be the spiritual leader of the home. He's to be the example of faith to his children. But sadly, that is rarely the case. Almost 25% of the time, the father isn't even present, let alone the spiritual leader. And I've got all the statistics about what happens and with the father's not present, but that's not where I'm going today. It's not the point. My point is that a strong but meek father who is devoted to Christ, following Christ and devoted to their family is a rare blessing indeed. But it doesn't have to be so rare. It doesn't have to be so rare. All you dads here and watching online today, or maybe you're watching this a week from now. We've got a lot of folks traveling. Whenever you're watching this, I want to challenge you. I'm going to get on your toes just a little bit. 
but I want you to break out of the American, and I'm not, I'm a patriot, but I want you to break out of the American mold of what it means to be a good dad. Bringing home the bacon and being the lead sports instructor of the family. Those things are fine. Some of my greatest memories and things that I enjoy is to watch my girls compete, watch my son compete when he was in high school. I love that. It's wonderful. Those are great. Nothing wrong with that. Definitely, it's godly to provide for your family through a job and through income, but those two things are not the most important. Dads, I'm asking you to step up. The Word of God ask you to step up and become the spiritual leader that you have been called to be. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to have all the Bible answers. But what you do have to do is work daily on your relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to be intentional about your relationship with Jesus Christ because, listen, listen, out of that relationship with Jesus comes the parenting and the fathering that you need to do. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That word righteousness literally means an action that is morally right or just. An action that is morally right or just. Now, if you just go with what you believe is moral and just and what I believe is moral and just, we are going to be way different. What is moral and just is not what the talking heads on CNN or Fox News say. Being moral or just is not what the media says or what Hollywood says or what the president says. It is only what God has already said. This is our standard. You understand a standard doesn't change. It's like a tape measure. Two feet is always two feet is always two feet. This will never change. He has given us the standard of righteousness and God is saying, if you've got, you got a hunger and thirst, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at the screen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's standard, God's standard of morality and justice. Has any, have any of you ever been so hungry or thirsty? I'm not talking about like you're hungry right now. I know I am too. My stomach's been growling. I'm not talking about that. Have you ever been so hungry or thirsty that it, that it literally affected your ability to function? I was, playing, um, I was playing tennis in a match uh, when I was probably, it was high school probably, and it was August. And it was probably 95 and 100% humidity. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's Georgia. And I was young, and I had not d- done my diligence and had enough water. And I'm in the middle of, of this game, and I start seeing these pinpricks around the... <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? Around the edges of my vision, and it started closing in. And I'm still trying to play. And somehow I played through that point, that game. Surely I lost that game and, and got through that without. But if I had gone much longer, there's no doubt I would have collapsed. And we've all seen heat strokes and, and all these kind of things. I equate this level of hunger and thirst that, God, that Jesus is, is teaching here with the word passion. Say passion. 
It takes passion to, get, to go after something so hard that you are willing to sacrifice to get it or get better at it. Don't say you're passionate about something if you're not willing to sacrifice for it. I think about learning an instrument. I, I can play the drums, the bass, the piano, the guitar, but I haven't mastered any of them. I didn't sacrifice. I wasn't passionate enough about any of them to, to master those instruments. Now, pianos, I'm most proficient in piano. I could, if, I could impress most of you because most of you don't play. But if you put me next to a concert pianist or a concert pianist or a session player were to watch me, he would yawn or she would yawn because they would automatically know he has not put in five hours a day to master that instrument. I love to play golf, but Thursday as I was playing, I was reminded how terrible I am. I'm not passionate about playing golf or I would practice. I never practice. I only play about four or five times a year. You understand? Are you getting what I'm saying? How many remember the passion of the Christ, the movie? That word passion literally means suffering. It could easily have been called the suffering of the Christ, which really excites me about my Savior because what that means is that Jesus loved me so much and loves you so much that he was willing to be tortured to death. He was passionate about you and he is passionate about me enough to give his very life to make sure that I could have a relationship with God the Father. Give him praise right now for his passion. Now that's the idea here in Jesus' words. Look at the screen. He says, let your passion for righteousness be so strong that it causes discomfort to every sinful distraction in your life. That's not where you thought I was going with that, was it? If you're so passionate about righteousness, then when you get off the trail and you stumble, you are convicted and you quickly get up and get forgiveness and get back on the right trail. You don't stay there. You don't wallow in it. You don't continue in it. You repent and you go the other way. That's what he's talking about. If we had that kind of focus and desire to see God's will accomplished, then Jesus says, you're blessed. You're blessed because God will satisfy that kind of hunger. God will satisfy that kind of thirst. I love David's Psalm 63. He says, oh God, you are my God. I earnestly, I passionately search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Folks, I'm, I'm about done here, but we are definitely living in a parched and weary land. Everyone look at me. Unless you learn how to dig and how to sacrifice for the water, 
you're going to go thirsty. You're going to faint. You're going to flounder. You're not going to be successful because I'm telling you this thing is not going to get easier. Have you read the back of the book? Eventually, those things are going to happen. And I'm not a prophet. I don't know if it's now, but it sure feels like it. Sure feels like it. Don't be satisfied with being spoon-fed. Learn to dig through prayer, through worship, through the word, through service, and be refreshed. Next week, I hope to finish these Beatitudes, but we've talked a lot about what it means to be blessed or redefine happiness. And again, these things are opposite from the world because the kingdom is opposite from the world. But the Beatitudes have told us one thing very clearly, and it's our big idea. We can never be blessed. We can never be happy when we live self-centered lives. As long as you are pursuing things temporal for yourself, you will never truly be happy or blessed. Will you bow your heads, please? 